My name is Meg, and I am a compulsive eater. Hi, Hi everybody. So, this welcome to the Chronic Slippers and the people who sponsor them workshop. My name is Meg. I am a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, this is what I've got to say. I ask that all cell phones, including mine, are turned off. Thank you very much. Let's do that right away. Okay. Uh, All electronic equipment. Uh, This session is being taped. Anyone wishing to share will be required to sign in the speaker release form before sharing. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of the individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. An Ask It Basket I know is out there somewhere and will be circulated for the question and answer portion of the session. If you enjoy this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the tapes table to order copies of this session or any other session. They are available on CD or as an electronic download. The format of this session is as follows. Three speakers, nope, one. One speaker will share um, for 20 minutes or longer, followed by 10 minutes of questions and answers, finishing up with 10 minutes of open pitches. Okay, and as we begin, I would like to request a volunteer to read the 12 steps, and I'm looking for that. I thought that was right here. It's right here. Thank you very much. Okay. Yes, why don't you use the knife? Hi, I'm Natalie, compulsive overeater. I might cry. Okay. (laughs) The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you. I was on the right page a few minutes ago. <laughs> here we go, here we go, here we go. 
Okay, and now it is my great pleasure to introduce Sheila, who's going to be our speaker on chronic slippers and the people who sponsor them. That's me. (laughs) Hi, everybody. My name is Sheila, and I'm a compulsive overeater. It's really good. Yep, timer and... Okay, uh, is there anybody willing to be a timer? Okay, I think we're going to give you 20 minutes plus. What would you like? What would you like? We're actually going to be... Yeah. We're, we're going to see how it goes with the time, and I'll be watching here too. So um, we want to leave this flexible. If you want to, to open it up at the end where we're going to do sharing, I think we'll definitely want to open it up for the Ask It Basket. If you want to open it up for sharing, we can do that. If you want... Uh, to keep going, you mean it just keep going, we can do that too. We're going to kind of leave it flexible. Does that sound okay? So, yeah. You know what? I, I'm pretty good at watching, you know, for time. And um, um, But, yeah, you know, feel free to, to wave. So I'll tell you what. looks like we're going to get started. And this is over at what time? 2.45. Okay, so let's definitely make sure that we're done by 2.30. So will you give me a heads up like at 2.15? You can just, you know, wave or something. And, um, um yeah, and we'll we'll just we'll just see kind of organically where we're at in the in the room. All right. So again, uh, my name is Sheila. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I'm very very grateful to be here. And Meg, thank you, thank you for for um, for stepping up and volunteering to do that. It's always so reassuring that to not have to you know follow the the format and stuff. I'm just impressed by the fact that I actually got parked. I'm parked. I can't believe how big this place is. I'm parked way far away, actually, and they were saying, oh, you, you're, you need to be in the lobby way on the other side. So I'm just delighted that I made it here and then you know, found where OA is and then found the room and found the bathroom and stuff. So I just appreciate that I don't have to read the format. So thank you, Meg, thank you, and thank you for timing. I appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for coming. It's really great to be here. And um, I, how, how, how this is going to go, right? is I'm going to spend probably, and I'll tell you what, if you would, give me, a, give me a, a 15 minutes and then let me know, and then I'm going to take five more. I'm going to take 20 minutes, I'm going to tell you my story, and then qualify, and tell you how it is I arrived at this point in terms of wanting to be of service to chronic slippers and realizing that we needed to get it, the information out there, how people can be of service to chronic slippers, right? Because I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for 27 years, but I only have 15 years of abstinence because I was a chronic slipper for a dozen years. And all that means is, and we're going to talk about a lot of stuff in the second part of the workshop, you know, the part two about the big book. We're going to really spend the bulk of our time there looking specifically at the fourth step and the eighth and ninth step because those are the places where chronic slippers fall down over and over and over again, right? But at any rate, so um, I had struggled for about a dozen years, and all that means is I just wasn't ready to feel the feelings. That's all it is, right? And what I usually say to people is we want to figure out if you're done because I sponsor chronic slippers exclusively, exclusively, both in this program and I'm sober 27 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I always say I want the sponsee that nobody else wants. I really do, right? I do, I'm telling you. And I want the person who's sitting in the back of the room who thinks for whatever reason they have not been invited to the party. Those are my people. Those are absolutely my people, right? Um, Oh, let me just give you this other little caveat too. I have kind of a trick knee, so occasionally I'm going to be darting between here and that chair sitting down, but I'll make sure I've I've moved all the stuff off the table so I'm real good at eye contact and stuff. And that'll only be if I kind of run out of gas with my knee and things. But... um, um, 
So I, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I got sober when I was 23 and then bobbled again six weeks afterwards. And um, so it actually ended up being I was 24 years old when I got sober. It was in Thanksgiving of 1987. And I remember turning to somebody three months of sitting in the rooms and saying, do you think you can, somebody can have a problem with sugar like you have a problem with alcohol? And she said, oh, absolutely, go to Overeaters Anonymous. And I said, well, what would you know about Overeaters Anonymous? She was a very thin, beautiful woman. And she said, well, I used to weigh 200 pounds. And that was what I weighed, right? So she pointed me toward a meeting. And here's the thing. I went into my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting, and this all happened for me in the Midwest, right? I'm from Michigan. And yeah, I know, good Midwestern girl, right? Love everything about it that people make fun of. I'm like, yep, I'm right there. I love it. Honest, good people. And the great thing about my town in the Midwest is there's not any good restaurants there. So there's just no temptation there. They're just not. And um, we're recording, so I'm not going to mention. But, um, but at any rate, um, and that's good. I should be at home eating instead of eating in restaurants anyway. I can cook better and my husband can cook better. But at any rate, so if I had taken the direction that I got when I went into my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting, I wouldn't be here talking about chronic slipping, right? Because I came into this little meeting, and it's funny, I was just home in the Midwest and went to that very meeting again, still little, it's not growing. OA is not growing in my town of Lansing, Michigan. I don't know what that's about. But, um, but at any rate, I went in, and there was this beautiful woman. I remember she was this gorgeous African-American woman, and she had a doctorate in accounting. And I'm an academic at heart, and I had just, was just finishing a uh, four-year college degree that took me seven years to do. So I found this woman very, very impressive. I mean, my life was really unmanageable. Between the drugs and alcohol, I was a you know, pot smoker and a drinker, and, but most of all, I was an eater, right? Be- between all that stuff and all the chaos and craziness, my life was just a mess. And after the meeting, right, it was an 11 a.m. meeting, I remember, and I was going to Overeaters Anonymous. Again, I had three months of sobriety, so I kind of knew how this worked. I knew you got a sponsor. I knew there was something to do there. And I knew that when I came into AA, I didn't drink. So I figured if I came into OA, I probably don't eat, I guess. So, um, you know, and I was 200 pounds. So I came into my first meeting, didn't have any breakfast, go through the hour meeting. And afterwards, I'm talking to this woman. Meanwhile, my blood sugar is plummeted, right? It's gone through the floor. And she stayed afterwards, and I asked her how this worked in Overeaters Anonymous, what abstinence was about. And she said, well, sweetie, do you, have, do you have something that is a problem food for you? Is there something you can identify? And I said, absolutely, sugar. Sugar is absolutely a problem for me. She said, well, how about for your abstinence, what if you just didn't have sugar and you had three meals a day? Like she said, you've probably already had breakfast. And I said, no, no, I haven't. Does we get to have breakfast here? She said, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, how about three meals a day and no sugar? And I thought, okay. Now, here's the thing. I can't remember if the conversation continued. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt and say that it did. I hope that it did. Because I hope that conversation continued with what we do is get sponsors here. Um, I can sponsor you. Oh, oh, forgive me. Oh, good Lord. So what do I do? I'm so sorry. Isn't it funny how you get triggered? All of a sudden, you're that little girl, and it's like, they don't love me. There's something wrong with me. See, and that's good. We'll talk about that in the second part of the workshop, and we'll see how far. I might have to stand back this far. Let me just see if we can just put it down a little bit. Oh, dear. No, no, the recording guy said we can't. Now you're hitting that trigger again. She's loud enough without it. Oh, darn. I'm playing. I'm sorry. 
I think we don't have the control, do we? You know what the best part about this is this humili- humiliating episode is being recorded. <laughs> Right, so I can play it over and over and over again, right? Like it's not going to go over and over again in my head. But, um, all right, I forgot where I was. Where was I? Thank you. Right, so I'm hoping that she, she suggested her availability as a sponsor. And even if she wasn't available, I hope she said something like, I can work with you temporarily or something like that. I'm hoping and assuming something went like that. And let's just go on the assumption that it did. But I do know that I left that meeting, and I realized, okay, well, let's go have breakfast. So I went to a, a little restaurant and went in, and it, it was a Denny's, right? And I ordered a breakfast. I had, a, you know, the eggs, the toast, the juice, the, you know, all the stuff. And I remember as I was sitting there eating that breakfast, I thought, I have never been in a Denny's eating this meal when it wasn't 3 o'clock in the morning and I'm just getting out of a bar, right, and uh, there's a bunch of drunken people around me. I mean, I'd never been in there for a normal breakfast meal, and I ate the meal. I went out and I sat in my car. So now it's about 1.30 in the afternoon. I've been to a meeting. I've learned a little bit about how this works. I've just had a meal, and I've been directed to have three meals a day, no sugar. And I sit there and I think, wow, this, this feels very doable. No. It's got to be more complicated than this. And I proceeded for the next dozen years to really complicate it, right? I wasn't, I wasn't able at that time to take that simple piece of direction. And again, I never spoke to that woman again. I don't know her name. I wouldn't know her if she was standing in front of me. So I don't know that there was any communication about sponsorship or an exchange of phone numbers or anything like that. Um, so that keeps me very cognizant of what it is I need to make sure that I'm doing when people are coming in here for the first time. But, um, and perhaps she offered all those things and I passed on it. I don't know. But um, I proceeded for the next dozen years to really complicate it. But here's the wonderful thing that I did. I did eventually get a sponsor. I got a sponsor. I got a wonderful, wonderful sponsor. And she gave me a piece of direction that changed my life. And it's the piece of direction that I continue to pass on to people that I sponsor today. And I talk about this all the time. And she said, I don't care what you're eating. I want you to work those steps. You work those steps regardless of what you're eating. Okay? Now, there seems to be a, a big controversy in, in OA about that. Some people say, well, you can't work the steps if you're, if you're in the food in the same way an alcoholic can't work the, the steps if they're in the alcohol. Well, this is Overeaters Anonymous, right? I work my AA program in AA, and I work my OA program here. And while there are some similarities, in many ways it's very different. And that just was not my experience. The reality is I was able to work the steps despite the fact I was not ready to put down the sugar, which means I was not ready to feel the feelings that were going to come up behind the sugar eating, right? And, um, and I am so grateful that she gave me that direction to work those steps. And here's how it started. And I'm just going to give you numbers so that you have a sense of what my level of willingness was to feel. And I started, I came in at 200 pounds. I weigh about 135, 136 now. I'm 51. And um, came in at 200 pounds. And I started working those steps. I took her direction and, again, kept 
eating the sugar I was eating, but and was taking whatever direction. I can't remember what the initial direction I was given in terms of food plan and how to eat things like that. But I know that I started working those steps right away. I know within a year I was I was I had completed a four step and given away a fifth step, right? And that really was a game changer for me because about a year and a half into this, I still hadn't stopped eating sugar, but now I weighed 180 pounds, right? So in two years of working the steps, and I still wasn't done with the sugar, wasn't ready to feel those feelings, 20 pounds had gone away. And I was at a family event, right? I was the youngest of five children. Um, My father had three overweight daughters, and he didn't like it, and he was real clear about that. And he, um, it was very humiliating. He was unkind. And he would make comments at family events and do it in front of people. Really hurtful stuff, you know. And we were at a family event. So now, again, I'm two years sober and I'm two years in OA. And he, I walked by him. I can remember it like it happened yesterday. I can still see what I was wearing on my sister's front porch. And I walked by him and he said, well, he said, I see you've lost a little bit of weight but you still have a lot more to go. But So keep up the good work. And I turned around and I said, no more. That's it. It's over. You don't talk to me about my weight anymore. It's over. And everybody was shocked, my father included. And I got it in that moment. And I'm very clear about it now which is why I don't ever debate anybody about this. Can you work the steps? And is there anything valuable that happens? That was my recovery at the time. And that was incredible recovery. I could finally stand up to my father, who should have been loving me and celebrating me regardless of what I weighed, right, and tell him that this is not okay. It was actually never okay for you to be talking about my body weight and saying unkind things about me. I mean, I'm sure fathers do a lot of damage to sons when they do that, but I'll tell you what, you really screw up your daughter when you make it clear to her that she's beautiful and valuable if she weighs a certain amount or looks a certain way, right? And my my friends were always very thin, so I would get comparisons in front of them about, I mean, just really humiliating, unkind stuff, yeah? So that was a real breakthrough for me, and I kept doing the deal and then really kind of got into more trouble with the sugar. It was just causing real distress because the painful thing about it, and again, this all happened for me in the Midwest, and the philosophy there is we are influenced by the Alcoholics Anonymous of Bob Smith out of Ohio, and Bob's theory was is you keep going through the steps over and over and over again. In contrast to the New York group, Bill's people, who said, yeah, you go through the steps one time and then cycle through 10, 11, and 12 for the rest of your life, right? And both of them are convinced they're doing it right and the other one's doing it wrong, right? Don't ever get in those debates. Don't get in a fight with somebody in the rooms, right? You're, it's, you'll never, it's, you don't even want to win. If you win, you lose. But, um, um, but again, coming from the Midwest, coming from Michigan, I just was directed to keep cycling through those steps. Well, the interesting thing that happens as you're doing that is you start shuffling off that mortal coil, right? You start shuffling stuff off, and all of a sudden, it becomes more painful to do the things that are really hurtful to you. So I ended up, a few years later, I ended up uh, going into an eating disorder unit out here in Southern California. And EDU is just another name for that as a psych hospital, right? And, um, and that was really good for me. I was there for, for uh, seven weeks, actually. I was there for six weeks and still really felt like if I left there and got back into the sugar, I'd probably have to take myself out of the game. And they said, uh, we're going to comp you a week. 
and they did. And um, and then ended. It became clear that my family was a, there was a real problem in my family, and that it would probably be a good idea for me to stay in Southern California. So I did. And I had a brother who had been diagnosed with with diabetes when I was seven years old. So for me, my whole story, every I'm just going to leave you right here for a minute in terms of me being in Southern California, but I'm going to back up for a moment and tell you that um, everything started for me when I was four years old. And I, uh, uh, we had a family friend who would give me very inappropriate kisses. He owned a grocery store, and he'd give me very inappropriate kisses. I remember his lips were wet in exchange for candy bars in the front of the store. And my mother was God knows where, right, in the back of the store, I guess, and um, um, I can remember the day I just thought, well, that's not okay. This isn't all right. I'm going to just start stealing these, right? I don't like these kisses. And it's interesting when I – so that was where – stealing was a big part of my story. It's interesting as I think about that because this has just kind of come up for me in the last year that I thought it's interesting that it never occurred to me to seek out my mother and say, hey, can you have a conversation with him because this – Kissing for Milky Ways is not working for me anymore. Can you help me out here? Never occurred to me because I grew up in an alcoholic home, right? My parents weren't alcoholics, but my grandfathers were, both, both maternal and paternal. And my mother's father was a very violent alcoholic. He was a child beater. He wasn't even just a child beater. He was a beater-upper. And my mother was a wounded bird, right? So she was a very troubled woman. So she was very, very unconscious. And again, so that's why she was clueless as to what was going on in that store. And then... When was it? I was 10 years old. Then it was six years later when I got molested by that family friend's cousin, right? I'm being driven around in the back of a Buick, like, where are my parents? How did I get here type thing, right? That was the unconsciousness um, and the insanity of, of addiction, right? So at any rate, and then there was a lot of stealing and things that, that got fueled by this behavior because when I was seven, so again, remember, at four years old, I've already st- established that I'm willing to steal sugar. I'm, it's, already, it's already happened. So, you know, the horse is out of the gate. So now at seven years old, my oldest brother got diabetes, type 1. He was 15. And, um, and my parents, fairly unsophisticated, we were kind of lower middle class people, and they didn't know what to do. So my father had gone to school on the GI Bill, and they again they didn't. And he grew up in real poverty. My father, so he didn't know what to do. So they got all the sugar out of the house. Okay, well now we got a problem, right? Because again, three years ago I've already established I'm willing to steal, and now there's no sugar in my house because of my brother. So the stealing really amped up. Stealing was a huge, huge part of my story. A big part of my story. I had a lot of amends to make when I got to the, to the ninth step. I had a lot of people I needed to stand in front of and say, I'm sorry I stole from you. Here's, here's your money. Um, I had to do a lot of that, right? I'd worked at a McDonald's in college and had to, you know, I made a donation to Ronald McDonald House. And, you know, because I just did a lot of wacky stuff behind my eating. And I, it, I, it was a drug. I mean, I take this very, very seriously. I really needed to get my drug, you know? And... Um, and yeah, so it, 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 uh, that's how it all culminated, right, that I got to the point, I'm you know, three years in program, and I end up in Southern California in an EDU. So again, still working the steps in OA, always had a sponsor, and then was always sponsoring people, you know, because I knew that was how it worked. So the thing was, though, is I started noticing my weight, and again, just telling you the numbers so you can get an idea of what my willingness was to feel and what my 
hmm, what my commitment was to paying attention to what I was eating. So I came in at 200, got to 180 with that conversation with my dad. And then what happened for about the next eight or nine years is I would bounce somewhere between, I would say, like between 160 and 175. I would lose and gain 15 pounds three to four times a year. That was my thing, right? I did that for the next eight or nine years. I would go up and down with my weight, up and down, up and down. Well, if you do that, if you lose and gain 15 pounds four times a year, that's 120 pounds a year. So despite the fact I'm not a 100-pounder, I had a registered dietitian. That was part of my recovery um, when I got a, I had a real serious health diagnosis. She had me track my weight gains and weight losses. So again, despite the fact I'm not a 100-pounder, I've lost and gained. It's more fun if I know the exact figure, but I've lost and gained over 1,550 pounds. Because, again, I would just lose and gain, lose and gain, lose and gain. That was my thing. I'd go in and out of the sugar. And, again, sugar is my kryptonite. That is my thing. I have a molar, I mean, I have a filling in just about every molar in my mouth. I had real problems with sugar right from the beginning. So um, um, it, it, was really, it was really, really scary. It was really, really hard for me, that, that sugar. And I finally got to the point, though, because now I'm settled into Southern California. I'm settled into my life. I'm going to graduate school. I end up in a relationship. And I'm with this great guy who's now my husband. And he loves me no matter what I weigh. And he doesn't care. And, you know, he's starting to get a sense of how scary it is when we're on the roller coaster, though, when I'm in the sugar. But, um, But, you know, he loves me. And he's in for the long haul. And I just came to the conclusion, because now I'm, you know, 11, 12 years sober, and I've been in OA, and I'm doing the deal, and, you know, I've four, size 14, size 16, whatever, 12, 14, 16, somewhere around there. And I just figure, you know what, maybe, maybe sugar is just always going to be a part of my life. Maybe, it, you know, this is just how it's going to go for me. It's no big deal. You know, I couldn't seem to find a bottom, but I'd found some measure of sanity, it seemed like. Right? Put that on a post-it note with an asterisk on it, right? But something, it seemed like something was working. And I don't know how or why this happened, but in, it was fall of 2003, and it happened right around my birthday. And I decided, my birthday's the end of October, and I decided that I was going to go off sugar again, right? I was going to really give it a good shot, you know? Again, I'm working the steps, doing the deal. I'm going to give this a real good shot and see if I can't put sugar down. So I did. I stopped, you know, the sugar. I surrendered, and, and the sugar compulsion went away, and it was terrific. And I got through the, the – I remember I, you know, got through Halloween because I stopped right after my birthday. My birthday's October 28th, so I got through Halloween, got through Thanksgiving, got through Christmas, got through New Year's. And my husband and I had gone out to dinner on let – me, let me give you the exact date because I know when it is. Yep, 13th. Tuesday, the 13th of January, 2004. And we won't have time for it in these sessions. I, I do this same workshop in much, I do it in weekend retreats where we really have time, but I won't have time for it. There's a really good mother story, stuff with my mother. That's really a big issue for me, and I think it's a big issue a lot of times for people who are chronic slipping. Certainly forgiveness is. But at any rate, um, but we don't have time for that. But this was Tuesday. January 13th, 2004, and my husband and I decided to go for dinner, and we're doing a late dinner, right, and we're going to this really fancy restaurant 
in uh, Beverly Hills, and we're you know it's it's a t- ten o'clock reservation, and it just feels so exciting, and I'm all dressed up, and and again, remember, I've been off sugar now for two months, right? And um, and you know we have our dinner, and you know, and then after dinner, the waiter comes by and he says, "Did you want to have dessert?" And I said, "You know what? I think we'll take a look at the dessert menu." And my husband, right, just like. Yeah, well, look at that menu, right? And they set the menu down, and I said to my husband, how about, you know, we we get a dessert to share? And he said, okay, right? So we order a dessert, and they set this fancy dessert down, you know, in the center of the table, and my poor husband is just freaking out because he knows we're about to go on a ride. We're about to go on a ride, and again, Take this out of the context of an eating disorder and put it in the context of mm, heroin, right? Somebody's been off heroin for two months, and it's like, we're going to share some heroin. Just put it right in the center of the table. We're going to share it. It literally is that bad for me. I, I don't have any experience with heroin, but I do have the experience of horrible, horrible stuff happening to me when I get back into the sugar. So at any rate, I put down the dessert. My husband and I are sharing this dessert, Right? Sharing the dessert. I've been off sugar for two months now. We're sharing the dessert. And now there's a big problem. There's a big, big problem. Because we're sharing the dessert, but my husband is eating more than I am. And I know because I'm counting. I'm counting his bites, and I'm counting my bites. So now there's a real problem. Because I've been off the sugar, I'm back in the sugar, and now I need some real sugar. This this Beverly Hills dessert is not going to do it. So it's like, waiter, check, check, right? I mean, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of this restaurant, and I need to get home. No, I actually need to get him home, and I need to get to a store as quickly as possible so I can stock up because I have turned it on. And we'll talk about that when we get to to William Silkworth in, uh, in the doctor's opinion. I've now activated the allergy of the body. The obsession of the mind never goes away. That's why if we're here, we're here for life. But now I have activated the allergy of the body, right? And I'm in trouble. So we're walking to the car, and I'm like, come on, let's go, let's go, because my husband never wants to valet park, right? So we're walking the three blocks to the car, and I'm I'm already planning the lie. I'm already planning the lie that I'm going to tell him. I'm, I already got the lie going, right? I'm thinking, I know, I'll tell, because I got to explain, I guess it's got to be a good one, right? Because it's 11, it's 11, 15, 11.30 at night, and I got to figure out why I've got to get him home and drop him off so he can, you know, d- deal with the dogs, and I got to go to the store. You know, I'm already planning, so I think, I know what I'll do. I'll tell him that I'm on my period and I need to get tampons, right? So... Great, good, this will be good. And I think, oh, wait a minute, though. He's probably going to remember, though. He's going he's gonna to remember. I just had my period two weeks ago. You know, so, oh, shoot. And then he's going to want to know, why can't I go get him for you? You know, i got a very evolved husband. He's like, I can walk in and, you know, order OBs at a CVS. I can do that for you. So I gotta, then i got to think, you know, why, why is it he needs to go home and he needs to go deal with the dog and i got to go out and get the tampons? And I think, oh, and, and then again, yeah, I just had my period two weeks ago. He's going to remember that. So I thought, I know, ovarian cysts, ovarian cysts, right? So you know what, honey, I, 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 I think it's probably, you know, it's good for me to tell you. I, I, I'm thinking, they're thinking it's not cancer, but, you know, I actually just really need some time alone. So why don't you go feed the dogs? And I'm going to, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've already got that going on. Are you with me? I'm a writer. That's my job. I know how to do this stuff, Yeah. I, I already got it going on. That's literally the stuff I was going to tell him. I was going to tell him it's a cancer scare. 
but don't be afraid. But you, can we not talk about that? Can I? You know, I got it going on. That's what I was going to tell him. I get because I need why? Because I need the sugar. I need the sugar, like I need oxygen right now. That's what I have turned on again. That's what I've done. And my hand. And remember, I've decided at this point in my life. With my 10, 11, 12 years of sobriety, I'm just going to kind of do the deal. It's how it's going to go, in and out, in and out. I'm heading for an out. We're on the roller coaster, baby. Grab the handle. Buckle up and grab the handle. And I just think, this is no big deal. My hand touches the handle of our car. And I think, wow, I'm glad I don't live in a high rise. I thought, wow, where, where where did that thought come from? And in that moment, I got it. I got powerlessness over sugar. I got it that I could no longer guarantee if I kept eating sugar that I wasn't going to one day take myself out of the game. I got it in that moment. I got it. I'd never gotten powerlessness before. Why? It didn't really feel like I was powerless, right? I'd get back into the sugar. I'd gain 15 pounds. I never went back up to 200 pounds. I haven't weighed 200 pounds since 1988. When I came in Overeaters Anonymous in February of 1988, I haven't weighed 200 pounds since then. So it felt like I had a measure of power. So this just didn't seem like any big deal. I mean, it was unpleasant. I, I, I have a small body frame. I have some health issues that showed up for me. I actually do better when my weight is lower, but, you know, it's unmanageable if I'm 15 pounds heavier. No big deal. My husband loves me. I mean, he was my boyfriend, and it all evolved. We had a nine-and-a-half-year engagement, right? That's part of the insanity, right? <laughs> I know, I know. And people would always say, wow, that's a, that's a long engagement. What do you, what's, what's going on with that? And I said, well, I'm afraid. And they'd say, what, 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 what are you afraid of? I'd say, well, what do, what do you got? I'm afraid of all of it, right? <laughs> you got a pen? Start a list. But, um, but uh, I got it in that moment that I could no longer guarantee if I kept eating sugar, I wasn't going to one day kill myself. And that one, I didn't want on my life resume. I didn't. I did not want that on my life resume. I didn't. So I didn't, I didn't go out and get any more that night. I got it, that it was over. So that was Tuesday the 13th of January, 2004. Tell me what I did on Wednesday the 14th. Somebody tell me. I had sugar again, Right? That's the insanity. Somewhere in here, it talks about frothy emotional appeal. Doesn't do anything, right? I had, one could definitely describe that as a spiritual awakening that night, and I got it, that if I got into sugar again, I was going to kill myself. And I woke up the next day again, and I had sugar, right? That's the insanity. That's what we're talking about. That's, that's the crazy but I don't know what happened. It was a gift from God. Actually, I do know what happened. This, to me, is a testimony to the step work and the work that gets done here over and over and over again. And again, remember, in those 10, 11 years, I was sponsoring and being sponsored. That was a lot of selfishness that was getting cast away. And all I know is I woke up on Friday the 15th of January and the sugar compulsion was released in 2004 and it's never come back. Now, that was 2004. 
my abstinence day in OA was, is actually May 30th of 2000. And what was going on there is I was in here, right, for the 11 years, I guess, and I had a great sponsor, wonderful woman, and I was seeing a registered dietitian because I'd been diagnosed with MS in, 19, when was that? In 1994, I was diagnosed with MS. And my doctor said, diet can be a big component of this. Go see, I don't know anything about diet. Most doctors don't. Go see a registered dietitian. So he sent me to a registered dietitian. So for six years, I was under the care of, an, of a, you know, a, a registered dietitian. And again, in Overeaters Anonymous, working the steps, doing the deal, dealing with a food plan, still not eating the sugar, remember? I mean, still not putting the sugar down, still eating the sugar. But, but again, I was paying attention, and I was always honest with my sponsor and taking whatever direction she was giving me at the time. And I had various sponsors. But... Um, but um, I, I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't done with the sugar, but I, I got it that it was important for me to, you know, to pay attention to this and pay attention to, to what I was eating and things. And one day in the same week, my sponsor and that registered dietitian who I saw every week professionally, concurrently, both said the same thing independently of each other and said, it's time for you to, to be abstinent. We're just going to make a declaration for you. And we're going we're gonna to declare for you and put your stake in the ground that your abstinence, this was my sponsor, saying that I'm saying that your abstinence is being honest, rigorously honest about your food, right? Which means, quite frankly, you need to, you need to pay attention to quantities. So if we're paying attention to quantities, we've got to wham. We've got to weigh and measure. She said, I guess I've got to know what you're doing. I've got to know what you're eating, how much you're eating. She said, how does that sound to you? Well, that sounded okay to me, right? So that was how my abstinence in Overeaters Anonymous started. And again, remember I told you I was doing that bounce? Like, again, just numbers are just to let you know what my level of willingness was to feel and be present. But I remember I was bouncing like between 160, 175, something like that. Well, then the number moved down a little bit. So I started bouncing between like 155 and 165, 150, I might get to one. And again, so something was shifting. That's what I want you to get. Something was shifting. It's not an absolute here in terms of how this works, or at least it was not for me. It was not an absolute, an on or off switch. My abstinence was a very organic thing, and I grew into it. But that was how it started for those four. So my first four years of abstinence in Overeaters Anonymous, I would still occasionally eat sugar. I wasn't eating as much, right? And I had that little restaurant episode in the midst of it. But on that day, so now I'm almost, well, I guess it was like three and a half years later, because it was January, I would be celebrating my four years in, in, you know, May, the following May that would be coming. That was when the sugar compulsion got removed, and it's never come back, right? And I never had, I, I haven't had sugar. And then it was just a matter of sussing out and making sure, you know, getting clear about a food plan and what am I going to eat. And then, I, you know, I, I got to, you know, what amounts to my goal weight, right? Now... Here's the thing. Wouldn't it be great if that was my problem, right? Because now I just took you through this whole thing. My poor timer's like, I have been waving my hand. You are, you've gone way past the time. It always takes longer than I think. But this is important foundational stuff for you to have about me, to, to, for us to talk about chronic slipping. Wouldn't it be great if being overweight or eating sugar had been my problem? That would be so great. That would be so great. Let me tell you something. 
That was never my problem. It was never my problem. It's not my problem today, right? Even when I weighed 200 pounds, I didn't know it at the time, but that was not my problem. Sugar was not my problem. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. It wasn't my problem. I have two issues that I came in with, and they're the same things that I wrestle with to a much lesser extent today, but they're the same two issues. I do not love easily, and I do not forgive easily. Those are my issues, right? Again, it's much better today. It's much better today. But those are my issues. And between you and me, I think it's, I think it's all of our issues. I don't know. I think so. I know that it's definitely what shows up with the people that I sponsor, with the chronic slippers, right? And um, at any rate, so that made it clear then that once I got to goal weight, and I guess that happened a year, year and a half later, right? I finally got down to where it feels comfortable for me. And, and my doctors felt comfortable with it, and I stay in close touch with an RD, you know, wanting to make sure, because I'm, I'm blessed. I'm one of the lucky ones, having been diagnosed with MS. I got diagnosed, then undiagnosed, and then, you know, other, somebody else says, well, I don't know how they can undiagnose, you know, I mean, ba 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 right? It, you know, this is God's life anyway and God's body, but I do have a responsibility, and, and my responsibility in Overeaters Anonymous is to pay attention and, and stay present and, and not go in denial and, of course, be honest about my food and things like that, and that's, you know, that was the core of my abstinence is being honest about what I'm putting in my mouth. But I kept staying here and kept working the steps over and over again, doing the deal. And then about five, six years into my abstinence, I started looking around and realizing that there were a lot of people like me in the rooms. There were a lot of people who were struggling with their abstinence. Didn't you mention, is that what you said for you? Very good. Very good. Yep. There were a lot of people who were struggling. I noticed that. And I was lucky because I came in, um, in AA and I had a wonderful sponsor and she talked about the necessity of really paying attention to the people who are slipping there. Because again, people start having, getting an idea and I'll own this for myself. I know this was a, a big issue for me until the light turned on for me, but I somehow had this idea. If I walked into an Overeaters Anonymous meeting and there were people who were overweight, well, that was not a good meeting to go back to because there's no recovery there, right? I would think bratty things like that. Or I would think things like, um, hmm, they must not be working hard enough, right? Or I would think, mm, they must not be quite as spiritual as me, right? That's nice. Nice. Um, what else would I think? They didn't want it enough. They were letting fear run their life. They needed a harder sponsor. They needed something. Ba 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 ba. Thank God I found Alanon. Thank God. I know. Yeah, my husband applauds that too every time I say that. Right? And um, and and again, I had another spiritual awakening there, where I got very very clear that I was really now concerned about the people who were sitting in the back of the rooms, who felt like they'd not been invited to the party. And they couldn't get abstinent, couldn't, wouldn't, whatever, right? And all of a sudden, I realized how much I loved those people and how much I had in common with those people, and perhaps I could be of real service to those people. So I started sponsoring those people. But I had a sponsor who was very, very specific with how she did it. This woman really changed my life. And it involves us having 15-minute conversations Monday through Friday, 
right? Floating call on weekends. They always have work. I always had work to do on the weekends, but I would be talking to her 75 minutes a week, 300 minutes a month, and that woman sponsored me for two years, and that changed my life. I, I, was, I was a teeth grinder. I stopped grinding my teeth. I'd had dentists who'd been putting plastic things in my mouth for years to try and get me to stop grinding my teeth. And all I needed to do was tell the truth to an Overeaters Anonymous sponsor five days a week for 15 minutes. I mean, I would call, you know, at that time, and she would be there answering the call. And she'd get off 15 minutes later because there was another call coming in, right? So this, I had a real clear ideas about how I could sponsor people and I started sponsoring people, but it takes up a lot of time, right? I mean, you have, you have the time you have to sponsor people. And I realized that we need a lot more sponsors out there because I started getting a lot, of, a lot of communications from people about wondering about how they could, how they could sponsor people. Because, you know, it seemed to be, for whatever reason, when people ended up in my wheelhouse, um, I, I sponsor from the big book exclusively, exclusively, again, which is what we'll talk about in part two, but, um, you know, for whatever reason, people were surrendering. We were having some glorious conversations. You know, I was just talking with, you know, with somebody about this before the meeting. I just had a conversation before I got here. I pulled over to a rest stop because somebody had been trying to reach me. And she's somebody who's been trying to do this here for 20, 25 years. And she's having some really bad stuff happen. And the worst part is she's very wealthy. So she can afford it, you know. So when she has trouble in this town, she just goes to the house in the other town. Yeah. And, um, um. And we just, we had a conversation. So I realized that while in the midst of this sponsoring people, I wanted to see how I might be able to be of service because, again, I had my 12 years of chronic slipping, and I had, along with that, I had my experience of staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, seemingly doing it right. That is, coming in, being willing to put down the problem substance, and... Um, doing, working the steps over and over again and, and you know, getting some real clarity there. But again, it was fairly, I don't want to, I don't at all diminish my sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I always say if you would have lined up a bottle of tequila, a joint, a carton of Marlboro Greens, uh, and a hot fudge sundae, I would have run to the hot fudge sundae. I still would. That's not, sugar's my drug of choice, always has been, right? So, um, so it was, it's really a miracle that I got here, and I thought, I want to be of service to people. So I, you know, this is where I, you know, how I started doing the workshops and stuff. They're, they were originally put together for people who are sponsoring chronic slippers, who, who people like Meg's talking about, people who have sponsees who maybe don't have the experience. You know, There are plenty of people here who, who don't have experience. I mean, they just came in and got it right away. Right? I mean, we have people in this room. Raise your hand if you came in Overeaters Anonymous and got absent in your first meeting. Look at them. Isn't that amazing? Look at them. They're all sitting in the front of the room, too. <laughs> we should probably be paying attention to that. There's probably a connection there. Right? But isn't that brilliant? Isn't it fun, though? I always feel it's like, like I'm looking at, you know, I'm down here in San Diego. So when I ask people to do that, I always feel like it's like looking at the pandas in the zoo. It's like I'm so fascinated. I just want to look at them and... You know, they're so cute. Isn't that neat? How did they do that? Because it, it just seems so foreign to me. But bless their heart. But isn't that cool? But raise your hand again, ladies. I guess I think it was just ladies. No, the gentleman there. Raise your hand if you came in and got absent. So, now look around. That means everybody else didn't. Most people don't do what they did. And these, I get it. I've talked to Barbara, and, I, and I've talked to this other pretty woman in the yellow. What's your name? 
Phyllis, Phyllis, beautiful Phyllis, pretty in yellow. Um, I, I bet, I bet the same is true of all of these people. I bet they are really humble and, and gloriously aware that they were given a gift and that gift was I'm done. I'm done and I'm ready to feel the feelings. That's all it is. And thank God there are people who are examples to us in that way. Thank God. Bless their heart. I love it. I love that there are people here with long-time abstinence. I have never been one of those people who said, Oh, whoever got up earliest this morning has the most abstinence. Oh, come on. That's such nonsense. That's not true. That's not true. Barbara has 38 years. That's a good thing. That's a good thing that we, I have somebody in the room. And maybe somebody's got more time than that. But that's a good thing that somebody's been here for 38 years. And she's gone through weddings, perhaps, deaths. I don't know what she's gone through. But I know I've heard people, I know we got some, you know, we got some long timers in Los Angeles, right? People who've gone through weddings and deaths and funerals, lost children, got married, got divorced, discovered they're a lesbian. You know, I mean, I've just, people have just done everything. And they've done it abstinently. That's a good thing. That's a valuable, valuable thing. But it's really important for us to pay attention to the fact these people are a rarity. This doesn't happen to most people. Now, it's tempting to ask this. I'll ask it, and you raise your hand if you want to. But if you are not abstinent or you're struggling with abstinence, raise your hand. Look around in the room. Keep your hands up. Look around in the room. These are my people. These are your people. These are our people. This is it. These are the people that Overeaters Anonymous is for. I'm glad that we've got these glorious beauties and great gentlemen and stuff. People with long-term abstinence, bless your heart. When you've been given more, you know what you get to do? You get to give more. These are the people. This is what we are here to do, is be of service to those people. That's what I'm going to talk about in terms of how you can sponsor people and some things that I've found that have proven very, very helpful to people who are chronic slippers. Like I said, I help chronic slippers exclusively. We work the steps as they're outlined in the big book, and it doesn't take a long time. It does not take a long time. It takes about three months. By the time somebody starts working with me, they're going to be on a four-step in about eight days. And I give somebody two weeks, and again, we'll talk about that in part two, two weeks to do a four-step. It doesn't take a long time. It does not take a long time. Not if you're doing it as it's outlined in the book. But the thing is, when you get into that book, that thing just rocks. And if you are doing everything that that book directs you to do, you really see how they can, can say six times like they do in that book. This is the story of how thousands of, well, they say hundreds initially, hundreds of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Again, yet another controversy that particularly in AA people love to, you know, chomp at the bit about. I don't, I don't get involved in that controversy, right? But what they mean by recovered, people get scared to say that because what they're afraid they're saying is that, oh, I can eat whatever I want or do whatever I want or I don't have to come here anymore. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. What it means is you have had the spiritual experience that it talks about in We Agnostics, or you've, and, right, they're all the same thing, the psychic change that Silkworth talks about, Roman numeral 29, 
and the same thing that Jung talks about, the vital spiritual experience, on page 27. All three of those things are the same thing. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Jung breaks it down and tells it, uh, it exactly what it is, a vital spiritual experience. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding force of these men have been cast aside for a new set of concepts and motives to run the show. I'm paraphrasing. But that's the gist of it. That's what recovered is. It means there are so many steps between me and having a, a, a Snickers bar that I have recovered. And what recovered means is I get to come here and give away more and love more and serve more. As long as I don't lose sight of that fact, there's nothing that's scary to know that, wow, this has really, exactly what it talks about in the book has happened for me. So then my job is, how can I make that more available for anybody else who wants it? Particularly those people who have their hands up, had their hands up. People who, who aren't abstinent and want to be. Let me tell you something. If people are in the rooms, you know when we, you know, at the end of the meeting when we, you know, say the prayer, you know, keep coming back. It works if you work it. I don't say that. Mm-mm. I say keep coming back. It's working. Because if you're in that circle and you're in the prayer, it's working. It's working. It's already working. Now, do you have to do more? Of course. And again, we're going to talk all about that this afternoon. Of course. Of course. If you believe what we believe and you subscribe to what we subscribe to, you're going to have to do more. But not everybody does. And I, and, and I have zero opinion about it. I have two sisters. Remember I talked about we were all overweight. Both of my sisters are, are you know normal, healthy, beautiful weight, both of them. And my one sister lost 25 pounds over the last three months. You know how she did it? She got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And her doctor said, well, it would help if you didn't eat... You know, the, I'm, you know, the particulars aren't that interesting. He said white stuff, you know, white stuff. I guess no more egg whites for her. But, um, you know, he said, stop eating white stuff. And she did. And she lost 25 pounds. And her diabetes is, uh, everything's, you know, kind of fallen into line, right? I couldn't have done that to save my life. I couldn't have. When I got diagnosed with MS, I, I got, it wasn't long before I was in the, doc, in, in the office of a non-traditional doctor. And he said, well, baby, get off dairy, no dairy for you. He said, don't feel bad. I tell everybody this. But especially for you, no dairy. Inflammation. Not good for you. I couldn't do that. It took me a long time. Right? And that was with doctors, non-traditionals and traditionals. So I don't have what my, that ability that my sister had. And then my other sister just started running marathons. Um, uh, no thanks. Right? So that didn't work for me. That's not my thing. So not everybody belongs here. But if you feel like you belong here and you subscribe to what we subscribe to, there's a lot of things to do. And we'll talk about that. But never lose sight of the fact, just in case somebody doesn't decide to do something else this afternoon, don't, the most important thing, I think, I don't know, I don't want to say this, but I'm going to say it. I think the most important thing you're going to experience in this weekend is seeing all those hands in the room. This is what Overeaters Anonymous is. It's supposed to be a safe place for people who are still struggling. At the end of the night on your 10 stop, ask yourself what you did that day to make it safe in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous for people who are still struggling. Right? When you're making your outreach calls, are you calling the people who 
don't, who aren't in your, your, your phone, you know, the people you don't really know, those are, that's what we do here. And I'm really glad that I got taught that by my, my AA sponsor. And she's really glad she taught me that because at 22 years of sobriety, she drank, right? So she had taught me what I needed to know to make it safe for her. Now, she hasn't come back. I don't know if she will, but, um, but I'm glad that I know that I love her, I celebrate her, and my job is to be of service. That's, that's my job. That's my primary purpose. I take this primary purpose. I'll close as we're heading toward Asket Basket. I take this primary purpose stuff very, very seriously. My primary purpose is to stay abstinent and help others to achieve abstinence. That's my primary purpose. That's my primary purpose. Let me not ever lose sight of that. Right? I don't, I don't ever want to lose sight of that because there's a lot of people here in pain. And there are other stories I would love to tell. I can't tell because we're recording it. But, you know, chat with me on the break and stuff. Um, but there's a lot of pain out there. There are a lot of people who are in a lot of pain. And if somebody, either in the rooms or outside of the rooms, right, and it, it's very painfully obvious oftentimes with our disease, if we're acting out as a compulsive eater, not always if we're talking about bulimia or, you know, anorexia can, you know, that's usually an obvious one too. But, you know, if we're struggling with compulsive eating, it's one of those things that it's, it's pretty obvious or can be pretty obvious in the world. Um, it's about pain. It's all about pain and what somebody is ready to deal with. And I did have this conversation with somebody before um, when I was registering. And um, it's really important to remember that. I've heard stories that would make your hair curl on four steps and fifth steps from people who've been here for a long time, right, and tried to get this for a long time and are doing their first, fourth, and fifth step because they're remembering something really scary and bad. I've heard things that would blow you out of the water. So I got very, very clear very early on that I have zero opinion about what anybody does here or when they do it. Now, are there people that I am very connected to that I just, you know, I pray for them at night and my heart breaks because I, I see them standing in front of a wall, one person I'm thinking of in particular. I see this person, let's just call her Jane. I see Jane standing in front of a wall and she bows her head like this, right, gets halfway down, and then she plows into the wall, right, bangs into the wall, and then kind of you know, falls on the ground, and doy, yo 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 you know, head spinning around, kind of the cartoon stars circling above her head. And she gets up, and she says, man, I'm never doing that again. That's, you're never. But that wall, that's going to be different, right? That's going to be different. She does the same thing again. Gets up. Then that wall. Then this one. Oh, maybe this one. At the, over and over again. Do I pray and love? And, and in, in my bad moments, do I feel real frustrated and angry? And come on, Jane, come on. And then that's you know, time for me to do a 10-step, time for me to surrender, time for me to go to an Al-Anon meeting. Right? All those things and just love, love Jane right where she is. That's what we do here. That's, that's for me. That's, I'm very clear. That's what it is for me. I love the people I sponsor. I love doing that deal. It's fun to, you know, do this kind of stuff and speak and be treasurer and all that stuff and all the commitments. That's fun. 
But this is the primary purpose is how can I be of service to you? And how can I help other people know how to be of service to you? So um, so let's, let's, I'm going to put it there and let's do some ask it basket stuff maybe, Maggie? What do you think? And I'll let you, let me know how this goes. Mm. Sure. Okay, very good. So I'm just going to read questions. How do you deal with people being tired of people giving the same cause for dozens of years? I don't know what that means. Oh, excuse. Oh, thank you. Very, thank you. That, I bet you're right. Well done. How do you deal with, pe- with being tired of people giving the same excuse for dozens of years? I'm assuming what we're talking about is somebody saying, you know, oh, but I can't, or I'm afraid, or I'm scared, or, you know, but I don't know how to do it, or what will happen, or... Yeah, okay, sure, very good. My husband... <laughs> exactly. I'll tell you what I do is I, <laughs> I run to an Al-Anon meeting. It's not my business why anybody is not done. I have no, I wish, I wish that I could, I wish that I could, I could get people abstinent. I wish I could. I wish I could. Because if I did, my mother and my brother wouldn't be dead of diabetes. My brother died of diabetes at 36. Remember that guy I told you who got it at 15? Because like me, in addition to his diabetes, he had an eating disorder. He couldn't stop eating sugar. He never really stopped eating sugar in his diabetes, and he paid a really high price. Um, And as I told you, I've heard horrendous stories. Somebody is giving the same excuse for one reason. They don't know how to cope with the feelings that either start coming up when they get a few days of time or whatever, they, they don't know how to cope with the feelings, or they don't know how to cope with the memory. I told you, right? I got molested when I was a kid. How was somebody supposed to say to me, buck up, Sheila, Feel, get, just deal with it, right? You can't, you can't make somebody, and I'm not saying that everybody has that kind of a dramatic story here. I don't know what everybody's story is. That's the point. I don't have enough information. I never have enough information to judge anybody for anything. I don't have enough information. It doesn't matter whether the excuse is true or not. They're not done. They're in pain. What it calls forth from me is more love and compassion. Now, again, when I sponsor people, and again, we'll talk this afternoon, but I give people a lot of stuff to do. I tell them, we're going to, because again, remember the people I sponsor. People, if people have only been here five years and they're coming and working with me, that's a short amount of time. Bless you. Most of the time, it's 10, 15, 20, 25 years. I had a gal who asked me to sponsor. She's been here for 32 years. 32 years, right? Those are the people that are coming to me. So I, I, my job is just to be loving and compassionate, but I tell them we're going to figure this out really quickly whether or not you're done. Because that's all we want to figure out. If you're done and ready to feel the feelings, and we're going to do this very quickly, I'm going to give you a lot of stuff to do. Right? A lot of stuff to do. Because the book's real clear about that. We'll talk about that. On page 29, it's real clear. It tells us exactly what to do, what we do here. We give directions. It's not suggestions. That came 13 years later when he wrote the 12 and 12. The primary source material says directions. Right? 
So I give people very, and it's always with lots of love and joy and sweetness and hand holding, and they know I'm going to be there, you know, 300 minutes a month. I'm their girl, right? But I'm going to give you a lot of stuff to do because we want to figure this out really quickly. I can't get you abstinent, but the one thing I'm pretty good at helping you do, I'll help you figure out what the lie is. Because if you're here and you want to be abstinent, but you're not, somewhere you're telling yourself a lie. I don't know what that lies about. But let's figure it out. I always tell people, you can do whatever you want. Just stop lying about it. Just stop lying about it, right? So that's what I would do with the excuse. Be loving and compassionate. Okay, very good. Did you learn to love your sponsees or yourself or your husband first? Oh, that's so cute. Um, that's so sweet. Isn't that sweet? Uh, well, um, no, I think it started, you know, I th- I'm sure it was self-love, but it was being, it was everything we do in the rooms, right? Coming in here, let us love you until you can love yourself. It took me a long time to have a sponsor that I could call. That was why I needed to pay a registered dietitian. I didn't feel worthy to be, you know, to be using up somebody's time in that way. So it took me a long time just to relax into the love here, the love of a sponsor and really being loved in the rooms and showing up early and staying afterwards. And, you know, I'm still not somebody who really kind of goes for the coffee or goes to eat or things like that. It's just too weird to eat with people from OA. Everybody's just watching what everybody else is eating. (laughs) They just are like, oh, wow, eat that, huh? Right? No, thanks. So, I mean, I'll tell anybody. I always tell anybody. I'll send you the email I send to my sponsor at night. You know, you can see what I eat. I'll... Anybody who wants to see what I eat can see what I eat, but I just don't like to. So I'm not really into that. But it took me a long time to really feel the love here and then let, let that be saturated. But in terms of my priority in my life, my life, it goes like this. Number one, two, three, and four. Number one is God. Number two is 12-step programs because they've saved my life. Number three is me. And my husband is number four. And my husband is so sweet. He's always like, woohoo, I'm number four. Woohoo. And I'm like, well, you know, you're the first person besides me that's cool he's like very cool very cool but it's got to go that way right and it probably went that way from the beginning I'm also not somebody who ever said oh if I lose my abstinence I've lost everything I've never lost God I never lose God God's not ever going anywhere now I will lose myself I will lose my conscious contact I will stop meditating I will stop praying I will stop sleeping Right? I will stop. A lot of things will not happen anymore if I get into the food. But my God never goes away. But, um, but yeah, so that's that. Uh, how do you know when you're ready to sponsor? Ooh, well, I know when my sponsees are ready to sponsor. I have them sponsoring after they take a third step. Right? So after a third step, I say, let's get you a sponsee. And, and if they really have, and they always do, because, again, chronic slippers are chronic victims and chronic liars. That's just the reality, and again, I'm not, this is not, I'm there, right? Bill Wilson considered himself a chronic slipper. He talked about that in an early grapevine. It's not, it's not a, a horrible moniker. It's really not. It's what it is. So um, what I have found in my experience is that chronic slippers are chronic victims and chronic liars. Again, let's just say it out loud. That's what the whole value is of taking steps six and seven anyway, looking at my character defects and my assets. Remember the my creator prayer, how it goes. You know, my creator, I'm now willing you should have all of me, the good and the bad. Right? So it's looking at both. But that's the value. I can look at myself in the mirror, and I always tell sponsees this. I say, like, you know, kind of chuck your little cheek and go, oh, you little pumpkin. There you are being a little bratty, bratty victim again. Or there you are being a little, you know, 
Oh, he's such a goose, drudging again, right? It's all about how can I be, how can I, how can I tell myself the truth in a loving, glorious way so that if I'm here and I want to be here, I can move. But I can't move from here to here if I'm not willing to look at where I'm at here, right? And I can't be here seeing how I am if I'm going to be mean to me. I always said if being mean to me was going to solve my weight problem, my dad would have solved it in my childhood, right? Didn't work. Shame doesn't work. Not an effective tool. Doesn't work, right? But what we do here really, really works. So I don't want people to miss out on this. Um, The first thing I do when somebody asks me to sponsor them is I say, great, go home and read Working With Others. Pay attention to the paragraph at the top of page 96. Write on it for 15 minutes and give me, give me a call. And working with others. And in that paragraph, the, the, the first paragraph of that book, it talks about how you don't want to miss what it is that we do here. Right? It's, it's a privilege to sponsor people. And that's one of the things that, that chronic slippers are keeping themselves out of. That's part of the victimhood stuff and the childishness, the immaturity. You don't have to sponsor anybody. You don't have to do any real deal, really. But the problem is life will take on new meaning. This is the second paragraph I'm working with others. To watch people recover, see them help others, watch loneliness vanish. I'm going to paraphrase. Seeing a fellowship grow up, host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Listen to this next line very carefully. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Did you hear that article, right? I'm a writer. It's not a bright spot. It's the bright spot. That's pretty powerful language, right? There's all kinds of promises in this book. Don't let anybody tell you, talk to you about nine-step promises. You know, you you can pick any page of this book and put your finger down, and you probably put your hand on a promise. I was saying this. I just led a big AA meeting in the Midwest, and I was saying, it's too bad we don't drink anymore because that would be a good drinking game, you know? You have to open the big book, right? Find a promise. I got one pass of tequila, right? I mean, it'd be great. But the whole book is full of promises, right? There's all kinds of promises there. But that's a pretty powerful one. Frequent work with newcomers is the bright spot of our lives. We got to get people, I got to get people, sponsoring people as quickly as possible, right? But if they're still a little hesitant after step three, that's fine. Take two weeks, do your fourth step, I'll listen to your fifth step. And then you'll definitely take on a sponsee. And I always tell them, you got two weeks to find a sponsee, or I will find one for you, and I will find a doozy, right? <laughs> I'll give you one of mine, right? So because you don't, you've got to make the connection. It's really important to make the connection. The reason somebody is struggling here, I guarantee it, it is directly related to the work you are or are not doing. That's my job if somebody has said, take my hand and help me, right? If you're drowning, a blue boat, a red boat, a purple boat, a green boat, a brown boat will save your life. But get in a boat. Get in a boat, right? And if you get in a boat, that's my boat, you got in a red boat, right? So you're in the red boat, and, and presumably you want what I have, you know, and if at any time you change your mind and you don't, that's fine. Just no problem. Let's get you in another boat, you don't want what I have, that's fine. I, on my bad days, I don't want what I have. It's okay. Let's just say this stuff out loud and let's get you in another boat. I will row you up alongside another boat. I'll hold your hand while you're climbing in somebody else's boat, right? And then when you are getting rowed, canoed, sailed, 
paddled away, I will be blowing kisses, hoping that I'm one of the people you're going to be making outreach calls to. Because I actually would have taught you that in our first week of working together, too. We're going to work all the tools of Overeaters Anonymous. Those are not things that we're just supposed to be reading in the meeting at the beginning of a meeting, right? So I'm going to give people a lot of tools so that they make the connection between if I want to be abstinent and I'm not, it's because I'm not working this. It works if you work it. Both are true. And keep coming back. It's working. Show up. First and foremost, show up. Thank God all those people were in the room here showing up to raise their hands, right? And then I'm telling you, if you believe what we believe here and you subscribe to what we subscribe to, there's a lot of work to be done. And let me tell you something. It's glorious work. It's glorious work. You will get revealed to you in a way that you can't even imagine. Blow you out of the water. Do you still eat fruit and natural sugar? I, yes, I definitely eat fruit, and I'm not sure what we mean by natural sugar. Is that what we mean by natural sugar? Is that what we're talking about? Question answer? Question asker person? Anyway, maybe they left. But, yes, I still eat, I still eat fruit. and natu- I'm assuming they mean you know, fruit or fruit juice and stuff. I don't go to Jamba Juice and drink 32-ounce you know, smoothies anymore. I used to. And I remember I would go to my RD, and she would say, hmm, you just had about 20 fruits. <laughs> so I don't do that anymore, but, um, but yeah. How could you sponsor when you were slipping and sliding? Well, I, I remember I would have, you know, I talk about the slipping and sliding. Okay. So uh, I was always taking my sponsor's direction. So, again, I would get back into the sugar, but I would say to my sponsor, what do you want me to do? And she would say, just keep going and tell them. So, again, some people might say it's the blind leading the blind, but you know what? I've got a, my sponsor is blind in, in program, and her fiancé is blind. And oftentimes, they will be together going to an event or something, and they're holding on to each other. And they do pretty well together, actually. You know? They do pretty well together. All I know is I was taking direction. I was out of good ideas. You're right. Even as I look at that question, I think, how did I do that? How did that work? I, I, was, I have to come here. Surrender means being out of good ideas, Right? That's why I always tell my sponsees, be out of good ideas. You know why? You don't have any. You don't have any good ideas about how to stay abstinent. I don't either. That's why I have a sponsor. So I would say to my sponsor, okay, I got back into the sugar again or whatever, and she would say, tell them, and I'd tell them, and they'd say, well, I mean, they don't care. If you have a sponsor who's slipping you know, and struggling to get abstinent, they didn't, I never had anybody say, you know, off with your head, off you go. So I just, we just kept doing it, you know, and just loving each other and holding hands and let's, let's see if we can do this together, right? So that's an excellent question, excellent question. So again, how did I do it? I kept taking direction from my sponsor. And if my sponsor had said, you got back into the sugar, let them go, right? Then I would have gone to them and said, I love you, I'm sorry, I'm taking my sponsor's direction because that's what I do. I don't argue with sponsors or cops. I don't. So I just take her, I, would, I took her direction, and she said, keep going. So that's what we did. Uh, which steps affect sloppy? Affect slipping. Which steps affect slipping? Oh, that's so cute. Which steps affect slipping? Well, all of them. I mean, all of them. It, it, they all affect slipping. It's not about... It, it, Slipping is about, you, 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 we could go through all of them and say, somebody clearly doesn't have a sense of step one, right? They don't, they don't have a sense of step one. 
Step one in the big book is are four chapters. It's the doctor's opinion, chapters one, two, and three. Bill's story, there's a solution more about alcoholism. Those are the step one chapters of the book. But as it became clear to me, if I read the doctor's opinion, and I really believe what he talks about, that allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind, if I really believe that, and then I read Bill's story, and I really believe that and trust that, I believe that he's telling me the truth, all the different things he tried to try and control it. If I really believe both of those things, both of those stories, I can only eat on a lie today. I can only eat on a lie today. Right? And there are three lies. It's not going to bother me this time. Second lie. It's going to bother me, but I'll be able to control it. And third lie well, it doesn't matter. My life has no value. So it doesn't matter if I eat myself to death, right? Somebody's got their hand raised. Yep. Oh, I see. I hear what you're saying. Very good. No, what I'm saying is when we're finally putting the piece together, I know what you're talking about. I'm saying this is when people, when you take on a chronic slipper, excellent question. When, you take, when I take somebody on, they're going to leave it one of three places. But I actually, I just had something interesting happen with somebody that I just got them through all the steps. It's funny, but it's in AA. We'll skip it. Anyway, people are going to leave at three, one of three places. They're either going to leave right in the beginning, right? As soon as they ask me to sponsor them and I, you know, ask them, you know, kind of bring home the point that there's work to be done, they're like by, right? They're going to leave then. That doesn't happen often. By the time people get to me, they know how, they know how I roll. People, the, the, the jury, people kind of know how I roll. Again, I, I'm, people know how I roll. So by the time they get to me, they're not going to, that's not going to happen. But they're going to either leave at the fourth step, right? Fourth, fifth, fourth slash fifth, or they're going to leave at eight and nine. That's where they're going to, they're going to cut and run at one of those two places. That's what I was talking about. Yep. Yep. So, um, so at any rate, so that's, uh, I think that's all we've got on questions, which is cool. So now we have 10 minutes. We can do some, some, do you guys want to do that? Do we want to have some people come up and share? Would you like to do that? Or do do we want to, what else? Yes. The first lie is it's not going to affect me this time, Right. How many, how, how many people, boy, do I know that lie. It was like, you know what? I've got a problem with sugar, but I don't think I do anymore. I don't think I do. I don't have a problem with sugar. Here, I want to write something down because I want to tell you something. Uh, that's lie number one. It's not going to affect me this time. Second lie. It's going to affect me, but I'll be able to control it. I, I know sugar's a problem. I know, I know, but I'm going to have this. And you know what? I'm stopping Monday. No. No, no, I'm not going to say, because then Monday's going to come and it's, no, I don't want to stop on Monday. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop on July 1st. I'm going to stop on Wednesday, July 1st. Halfway through the year, I did half of the year this way. No, then July 1st comes, I get back. No, Independence Day. No, wait, no, my sister's birthday's tomorrow. I'm going to stop on my sister's birthday. I always loved my sister so much. Loved her. I'm going to stop on her. Then it's her birthday. It's like, no, I'm not going to stop on her birthday. She, you know, no, no, who's she? Independence Day. I mean, that's how it goes, right? Second lie. It's going to affect me, but I'll be able to control it. That's the part. This is the big lie for chronic slippers. Number two, it's going to affect me, but I'm going to be able to control it. That's the big lie for chronic slippers. And then the third lie is my life has no value anyway. It doesn't matter if I eat myself to death or drink myself to death. 
It, my life has no value. I'm a loser. I'm a jerk. Let me just kill myself over eating. Who cares? Right? And it's really, you know, it's really amazing what God can do. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a reality show that's based out of a, are you ready for this? It's based out of a bakery. It's a positive reality show that's based out of a bakery. Now, let me tell you something. And I just came back from there. You know, we're kind of in pre-production stuff in the Midwest. And this girl was my best friend growing up. She was one of those twins I referenced, one of those thin twins. And, um, you know, I, I, the only thing I could eat in that bakery would be, what, the doilies? Right? <laughs> That's the only thing I can eat in that bakery. It's not my food. And I was in that bakery and pulling, you know, warm things out of ovens, you know, huge vats of cream cheese icing. I would have, you know, just drowned in that years ago it's just not my food it's not and people said i came back and people said in my meeting said oh my god how'd you do it how'd you do it and i said well i didn't do it god does it right i do the work my job is always to do the work always to do the work right but god does the miracle god does the miracle and just removing the obsession and stuff that's that's way cool that's way cool so it's funny, I'm working out of this bakery, and people come from all over the country in this bakery to have this girl's stuff, and I've never had her pie. I've never had her pie. There's something better than pie. I never wanted the pie anyway. I always wanted the love. Somebody told me that on an outreach call. When I first went and was doing prep in this bakery six years ago, because we've been a long time on this project, <laughs> and I went outside and I was sobbing, and I got on an outreach call, because, again, that's one of the tools, and I worked those tools, and I called somebody, and I said, can I please, can I please just go in and have a, can I please? It was so cold. It was in November in Michigan. My, my hands were so cold. I was just, you know, shivering. I didn't have any gloves on. I said, can I please, can I please just go in and have a piece? Please, please just say yes. And she said, oh, Sheila, baby. She said, I couldn't reach my sponsor, so it's just an outreach call. She said, honey, you can do whatever you want to do. But I'm just telling you, it's not the pie you want. It's the love. It's not the pie you want. It's the love. Go back in and get the love, right? Go back in and get the love. And I did, right? And didn't have the pie. And it was great because then a day later, I realized two things. One, I don't even like pie. (laughs) I don't. And I don't ever, I don't want a piece of anything. I'm a volume eater. I'm a volume eater. So I want a bowl, a punch bowl, ideally, and I want, you know, certain things, creamy, fat. Sugar has to be combined with fat for me. I would never eat a jelly bean unless I could dip it in butter, right? (laughs) So, but I want a bowl. I want a bowl of stuff, and then I want a room, and then I want a flat-screen TV, with HBO, and I want you out the door, right? That's what I want. Let's be honest about it. I don't, because I looked back in the window and I saw those people, and you know they were, you know, eating like a bite of the pie, and they'd be leaning forward and laughing, and ah ha ha, or they'd be holding the bite, you know, in midair while they're laughing and talking. What a waste of time, right? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Drinking tea? What? Hope there's a lot of sugar in that tea, you know. That's, I got very clear because I used the tools and followed the direction and gave God that moment on, because of that outreach call, because of all this work, 
God can come in and do God's work, which is lead me to what is, it is I really want, which is love. And then the reason I can get to the love is because in working the steps, I learned about forgiveness. It all boils down to forgiveness and love. And when you forgive and love, and you learn how to forgive and work in the steps, when you forgive and love, you naturally want to serve. You know, people always talk love and service. Not me. I talk love and forgiveness. And service just naturally grows out of that. Yep. So, um, yep. Oh, sure. And now, and I'll have to repeat the question. Yep. Yep, about three months, right? Three, four months. Now, I did with a guy, it took us six, six months. And then what I do is I just lovingly encourage them. I say, go, you know, go see, hear what someone else has to say. You've been through the steps with me. And again, I, I, I would love to be one of those people. And sometimes people say, well, I'm going to keep you as a sponsor. And I'm like, that's fine. One woman said, can I call you an emeritus sponsor? And I said, yeah, that sounds good. I like that. Does it, is there pay involved? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. But, um, so I said, yeah, sure. So, you know, you, they can still call me whatever they want to call me, right? Just don't call me late for dinner. But, um, you know, they can still do whatever they want. But what I do is once I've taken somebody through the steps, I've taken you through here. Now either go work with somebody else, let them take you through the steps, through our wonderful OA literature, go through the 12 and 12. Go hear what someone else has to say. Because it's really important that we get this. This is not a personality-driven program, and it's not. And if anybody ever tries to put me in that role, I step on it, and I step on it quickly, right? We're just all in this together, right? These are just some things I've found that have worked really well. And I, again, have had some great success in having conversations with chronic slippers because I feel, gr- I feel profound compassion and love for them, and I know the pain. And I have known my own pain, and there is nothing that anybody can say to me that is ever going to throw me off, ever. Because I did my work... And, and because you, you make an eight-step list when you took a four-step, and, and again, we'll talk this when I get to, you know, the, um, the, uh, the molestation and stuff, but because then it was brought home to me that I didn't owe that, let's just call him Joe, I didn't owe Joe an amends, the man who'd molested me, but I was certainly responsible for the fact that I hadn't forgiven him for years. For that, I was responsible. And we know I hadn't forgiven him because he was on my four-step. Because resentment is just a $2 word for I don't forgive you, asshole. (laughs) Right? That's all it is. That's all it is. So when I make amends, and my sponsor directed me to write a letter, and it went something like this, because we don't get a lot of direction in the book about how to make nine-step amends, so you are dependent upon a lineage of good sponsorship. Make sure your sponsor has a sponsor, right? But we're dependent upon that to get really good direction about how to make nine-step amends. And what I was directed to do was write a letter. And it went something like, and I didn't mail it to Joe. I mailed it to myself and then put it in my God box at my sponsor's direction. But there were three things in the letter. Dear Joe, I forgive you for having molested me when I was 10 years old. Number two, please forgive me for not having forgiven you for 15 years. And then three, my sponsor told me to write something nice about Joe. She said, because the problem is when somebody's done something horrible, we see him through this periscope, and this is all they are. Well, that's not all that Joe was. Not at all. Not at all. He was somebody's son, 
somebody's nephew, somebody's father, somebody's friend, somebody's bowling buddy, right? Somebody's employee, somebody's employer. He was a whole host of things. So I wrote something nice about Joe, and then she said, sign the letter off as high as you can go. And there's nothing higher than love, and you're going to get there eventually. And the whole 12-step program movement is both a behavioral and a cognitive approach. So you might as well act as if and sign off love, Sheila. She said, but if you can't, write sincerely. But I always signed him off love. And then I mailed that letter to myself, came back to me in the mail, because she said, you're circulating it through the universe. Sounds very California-ish to me. Great. And then I moved to California, and it's like, oh, wow, that really makes sense. But um, <laughs> so makes sense. Circulation. But um, then I, it came back, and I put it in my God box. And I got free. I am free. And I'll tell you what, I've actually led meetings where I've shared that story. And it only happened one time, but this woman got up. She was furious, and she was screaming on her way out the door. What do you mean for giving that? You know, and I, I get it. All I can tell you is, and it talks about it in various places here in the book, and if we had longer time, we would find you know, some wonderful things to point out. But it basically says, you better be prepared here to turn yourself inside out. You'd better be prepared for that. So if the deal is I can either have life or I can have my anger and not forgive the guy who molested me, well, I choose life. Right? So um, that's what's possible here. That's what's possible. Now, that's scary to somebody, you know, who's been, you know, people are in real pain. So, you know, again, I get to hold, hold their hand, be really loving. And, um, but I always tell people, you don't have to, I don't care what happens with your eating in our working together, but you got to give me something. Got to give me something. You either got to give me abstinence and the work or you got to give me the work, but you got to give me something. I mean, if you don't want to be absent and you don't want to do the work, well, I'm not the sponsor for you. Let's find you someone else. Let's get you in another boat. That's the only time I let somebody go if they don't do the work, unless somebody wants to work their anger out, you know, their mommy anger and rage at me or say something mean. That's not going to happen. I'm not a, I'm not a, qualif- I'm not a certified health care professional. That's not my job. I don't have, that's, not, that's way above my pay grade. But, um, but that, that doesn't, you know, that happens once in a while. But not, I mean, it hasn't happened for me in years. But, yeah, so, um, so that's, that's the deal. So I think we are officially officially done. Shall we close with the serenity prayer? Do we want to do it? And somebody's got a hand. You got a hand up, baby? Yes. Um, if I was to order your CD, uh, what is your last name? Oh, Jenka. Yeah, Jenka. J-E-N-C-A. Okay. Oh, dear. Smith. My last name is Smith. <laughs> no, I don't care. No, I know. I usually I do this all the time. I put my phone number out on these things. I don't care. Call me. You can come get my phone number. Anyway, let's just stand and do the serenity prayer. Shall we just do the prayer? Yep, let's do it. Okay, and what I always say is let's just uh, take a moment of silence while you're all getting together, figuring out how you're going to do that down there. Um, Let's take a moment of silence for the compulsive eater, bulimic, or anorexic who's still suffering in this room, and we know that they are both in this room and that they are out there. 